0: Good evening, church. It's um, such a joy to see you all encourage one another like that and in singing. Uh, What a wonderful time that was. Um, For those of you who have your children here tonight, um, you are brave and we commend you. I know it's difficult. We have three. Um, The mother's room is available if you want to make use of that. Um, But um, please don't stress out. Uh, the opportunities to have your kids with you in the service, to have that time together where they learn what it means to sing with the saints and to sit through the preaching of the word, it's, it's an important time as well. And as a congregation, we're relaxed about the noise. So please don't stress out if your children are making a noise. All right. Will you open with me to the book of James, James chapter 5? I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 6. Our Father, it's a a joy for us to gather, even if it's a little out of routine. It's a wonder to come to your word again um, and to a passage, Lord, that is so um, hard-hitting. I pray, Father, that you would still our hearts, that you would quiet our hearts before you, that you would make us humble before you tonight, and that you would do business with us by your Spirit, that you'd help us to reflect on our lives, on our lifestyles, on what it is that we call our treasure and make our treasure. Lord, we pray that through the preaching of your word, your son would be glorified as the greatest treasure in all the universe. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. When I play golf, Um, I I try to look where the specials are because golf is a very expensive sport and I'll sacrifice scenery over economy or or scenery for economy anytime. But the one time I was given a a gift, a, a golf game at Stain City in Johannesburg. Now everything about that experience is intended to remind you of the high life that's available in the estate. You arrive and someone takes the clubs from your car straight to your cart. Someone else comes with a menu to take your lunch order. After you play the, f- the front nine, somebody's waiting with a warm towel for you and at the halfway house, and the meal that you ordered is hot and ready for you. When you have eaten and you step up to, the, to tee off at the 10, you're plump and satisfied from the rich treatment you received. This is your view. There's a picture here. This is the view that you have. It's Doe palatial mansion. In fact, he calls it the Palazzo Stein. Those Roman aqueducts cascade a chorus in his honor. You get to revel in the opulence of it all and leave your thanks for the experience as you go on your merry game with the thought, what a life he must live. And if you're a believer, you might be facing the same temptation that Asaph had to conquer in order to write Psalm 73. In verses 1 to 3 he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now in fairness, I don't know anything about Do apart from his well-positioned palace and from the fact that he's named the estate Stain City. But the point about envying, envying the worldly wealthy it holds true. Asaph wrote his psalm in order to shepherd Israel. He shared his experience, the need that he had to reorder his priorities and remember what is the true treasure of his heart. He did it. He wrote the psalm to help them guard against falling into the same pit that he nearly fell into. He says it's only when he went into the sanctuary of God, that he, when he met with God, that his focus was realigned. He was able to discern the end of the wicked. And he was reinvigorated with the declaration of what is true treasure. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, Asaph's experience in Psalm 73, I believe, is a helpful parallel as we approach James chapter 5. Because I believe the same heart that Asaph had for Israel is the heart that James has for the people he's writing to. It's a passage in this letter unlike any other. It's scathing and it's intense, isn't it? It's an intent in a a book that is already hard-hitting. And so before we dive into this passage, I think it's important to understand who James is writing to and why. He says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And it's okay to shift a little in your seats uncomfortably. This is some of the strongest language in all of the New Testament. When You read through this passage, it's very, very difficult to imagine that James is writing this passage to Christians, that Christians would be in focus. It starts out in the same way as the passage starts out the, the passage we saw last week, "Come now," those same words," and that both passages are addressed, addressed to the wealthy. Last week, the indictment was that the wealthy were making plans um, self-sufficiently, without reference to God's will or their need upon him. But that, even there, is where the similarities end. 5 verse 1 to 6, the passage I read is missing the uh, same appeal that we've seen throughout this letter, this appeal to humble repentance. It's just an indictment. James just brings one indictment after another. Certainly gone is the common address, brothers. Reading this passage, you feel transported back a few centuries to the time of the prophets. His tone is the blasting tone of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum as they denounce the wicked nations around Israel or the wicked in Israel, those oppressing the poor of the land and thinking that they can get away with it. Weep and howl, he says. The ESV captures well the sense of the words in the Greek. Those are words frequently used as well of the Old Testament prophets to depict the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord arrives. So the miseries that James speaks of here is not earthly trouble, but the judgment that will come directly from the hand of God for what they are doing. In a similar tone, John is writing of the future misery of Babylon, that uh, Archetypical city of wickedness in the book of Revelation. And he says in Revelation eighteen nine to 10 And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail, he says, over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her to- torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. I don't believe the rich that James is focusing in on here are Christians, but are wealthy landowners who were oppressing the poor. And from two verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 to 7, we know that some of those same poor were part of the church to whom James was writing. These were the poor, afflicted Christians to whom James was writing. They're being taken to court by these influential wealthy, being honored, uh, dishonored and abused by them. And so you come to this passage and you have to ask the question, why is he addressing these unbelieving rich? These people who probably are not going to even hear this indictment. This is why I believe. This is my my take again. You can make of this as you will. It's very possible, firstly, that um, the message that James preaches here will reach some of them. Some of those for whom the shoe fits perfectly, guilty of exactly what James is denouncing. From chapter 2, we see that some of the rich do find themselves among the poor. They were being shown favoritism even in the congregation. If they hear, James will warn about the danger of the eternal consequences of their actions. And throughout the church age, God has used this text to land exactly where it needs to, to hit It's target like David's well-slung stone. And secondly, though, James addresses the rich, but he's writing to the church. He's writing to the poor and those suffering in the church. And I believe for two reasons. He's writing to comfort them and to protect them. Like the prophets denouncing the wicked nations around Israel, those messages weren't directed or they didn't speak to the nations most of the time. They were directed to Israel and Judah for their benefit, to remind them of the holy character of God and to comfort them as well in their suffering. So John Calvin says this of this passage, James has regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and reserved mind bear them. So I believe James has the same purpose that Asaph had in writing Psalm 73. This passage is a sobering reminder to all believers, rich and poor, about the dangers of riches. In our world, Admiration is given to those who amass material wealth. And Christians always need to consider their lives and their hearts. Consider the way that they see their money and spend their money and ask, is it a matter of sin for them? We must not think ourselves immune to the pitfalls of this passage. We need to check our lives. And James is also writing to poor, oppressed Christians. He's saying, remember their end. Remember the end of the wicked. Don't envy their status and wealth and know that God is just. He will be the one to avenge the wrongs that you are enduring. He's writing to help them remain steadfast. It's a purpose that he's going to continue in in verses 7 to 11, which we'll see next time I preach. One more guardrail as well before we enter into this passage. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be rich. So my title, A Woe to the Wealthy, was was clickbait, really, trying to just pique your interest. Maybe you've come ready for a a fight. Don't be misled by the title. The passage isn't, as some have suggested, it's not saying that, it's not just an indictment for being wealthy as if that's a sin. There are wealthy, righteous people throughout Scripture like Abraham and, and David and Solomon and Job. Now, Jesus speaks, doesn't he? of the spiritual disadvantage that comes from being wealthy. We must take these words seriously. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But there have been many wealthy people with hearts surrendered to God who have been used by God for great good in the church and in the kingdom. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So with these guiding thoughts, let's consider James' indictment to the unrighteous, rich, what he cries out against, and then let's apply it to our lives. There are four natural divisions to this text. And the first and the third, the first is verses 2 and 3, the third is verse 5, they both speak about the personal heart, your personal heart towards your wealth. The second section and the fourth section, that's verses 4 and verse 6, are both about the mistreatment of others for financial gain, and we'll consider each couplet together under one heading, together to understand James's purpose here, to protect and to comfort the church. So number one, let's look at his words of protection words of protection. He says, don't set your heart on material riches. Don't set your heart on material wealth. One of the great features that we've seen throughout this letter is James's love for the teaching of Christ. Uh, And I've pointed it out again and again, and we see it again in this passage, how he borrows from Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasized the difference between earthly and heavenly treasure. He says in Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says these interesting words. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, our treasure is what we value above all else, it's what shapes the way that we live money, power fame there are many things in the world that vie for the control of our hearts your treasure has controlling influence over your heart it shapes your life and so it shapes your actions what do you spend your time on what do you spend your money on your energy on what is it that you lose sleep over if you answer those questions you probably can find what your treasure is Are our hearts caught up in the cares of this world because this world is really where our treasure lies? James speaks of the folly in this passage of hoarding earthly wealth, of living with a single-minded focus on self-indulgence. Look at his words in verses 1 to 3 and verse 5 again. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. In verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So let's look at some points that James is making here about the folly of these lovers of money. Firstly, what he's saying to them is he's saying your wealth, what you put your hope in, is already failing you. Your wealth is already failing you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. James is pointing out the temporal nature of earthly wealth, how quickly it fades, how it's yet today and gone tomorrow. He condemns the rich for building their lives upon materials that rot, that are eaten by moths and that corrode. Now it's interesting though, isn't it? That I mean, do silver and gold actually corrode? They don't, don't they? So what is James saying there? I believe he's making a point. That gold and silver, the most precious and lasting of earthly materials, of earthly metals, they are as nothing next to eternity. See, to highlight the certainty and the pace of the deterioration of their treasure, what they are setting their hopes on. James speaks here, even in past tense, as if it's already happened. Your your clothes are already moth-eaten. Your gold and silver, it's already corroding. Douglas Moo in his commentary says this, Although the rich people do not or cannot see it, their great wealth has already lost its luster. It stands already under the doom of the things of this world that will fade away and can provide no foundation for the life to come. There's a reason that the more that you accumulate in this life of worldly possessions, there's a reason that the more you accumulate, the more you need. The hungrier you are, your possessions begin to lose their appeal from the moment that you possess them. Silver and gold may not corrode, really, but that's not the point. Next to eternity, which God has placed in the hearts of every man, they're already corroding. To their owner, they're never enough. Or is that the line from that song, that great movie, The Greatest Showman, Go- Showman Goes? Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough for me. Solomon tried to warn us in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 5, he said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves his wealth with his income. This also, says Solomon, is vanity. Oh, the trinkets of this life, they can provide a temporary fix, a moment of pleasure, but it's never enough. They're never enough to quench the thirst of your soul. In his commentary, Dan Doriani says that trying to use wealth to satisfy your life is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion. It can mask the problem for a moment, but not cure it. And yet we perpetually think, I just need a little bit more. If I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. I'd be safe. I'd be fine. We're deluding ourselves. Your worldly wealth, James says, fails you from the moment you require it. Number two, he says, it will fail you on the last day. It'll fail you on the last day. He says, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That is strong language, isn't it? Not only will your wealth bring no lasting benefit, Not only will it fail to satisfy you really in this life, but hoarded wealth will actually betray you on that day. It will stand witness against you on the day of the Lord. Hoarded wealth that can only burn up on that day will reveal maybe your foolishness. What you so desperately chased after and held onto will be clearly seen for all for the poor investment that it was. It will be held up, this treasure of your heart, in the light of Christ's splendor, and its pathetic value will be weighed as it is tossed aside. James is asking, will you put your hope? Will you put your trust in that which can only put you to shame? Now, considering the context that we'll see in this passage of injustice, hoarded treasure will not just testify to poor investment choices, and false priorities, it will testify to how you deprived others of good. In Luke's paral- parallel to the statement I read, uh, Jesus' statement of, of uh, what our treasure is, uh, in Matthew, Luke says in Luke twelve thirty three to 34, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, in using your wealth as a good steward to bless others, what you're actually doing is leveraging it for eternal things. Using what you have in this life for eternal purposes. Number three, and this is the great tragedy of the passage. James is saying that hoarded wealth blinds you to the eternal repercussions of what you do in this life. He says you've laid up treasure in the last days. In the last days you've done this. You've lived this life thinking that this world And what you have in this life is all there is. You've lived without a care as if you could go on like this forever and ever with no thought to where you are in relation to the approaching judgment of God, which James says is just around the corner. Alec Matea puts it this way, they lived without watching God's clock. In verse 5, James provides a frighteningly vivid picture of the sad reality. You have lived on the earth. In luxury and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What's the picture he's talking about there? Driving through Hillcrest, you, you get a sense of where people's treasure lies. You get a sense of the, the premium that is placed on wealth. Large houses, big sprawling estates, horses in wide open fields. As we drive home, every day we pass camp orchards. Beautiful green hills with cattle and sheep. My my kids love it. They love to look for the lambs among the flock. But there are these, these cows there. They live there day in and day out, living the high life. Not a care in the world, eating endlessly at that rich grass. And they have no idea that the more that they eat, the plumper they get, the closer they are to being on the picnic menu themselves. I don't know if they actually... Put their cows on the, their picnic menus. They got no clue as to the fate of the odd member of the herd that goes missing from time to time. James's picture is graphic. These rich are like unthinking beasts, living in luxury, heart fatter day by day, blinder day by day to the reality of heaven and hell, ignorant of the judgment that is but a blink away. James calls us to something else, to a cross-shaped view of our possessions. Christ's death and his resurrection has ushered in the last days that James is speaking of here. So the church age is an age of urgency. We live in an age of urgency. We should be urgent as the people of God. And the grace that we see at the cross, the generosity of the Father, the willing sacrifice of the Son, it makes hoarding and self-indulgence so incongruous with the Christian life. Don't envy them, he's saying. Don't follow the pattern. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What's your treasure? Where does it lie? Bring your heart to the cross tonight. Let your heart be analyzed by scripture tonight. Is this your prayer? My favorite hymn, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only be first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Now, practically, before we move on, we can ask the question: know yeah, we're talking about hoarded wealth. Does James's indictment against the hoarder mean that we shouldn't save money? That we shouldn't build wealth? No, being good stewards of God's money means we want to live financially responsible lives. It's good to have retirement plans, it's good to have savings, it's good to invest, it is good to build wealth, but we're called to do all these things all the time, with eternity in mind. We're not building for the sake of having. It's not going to help you when Christ returns, sitting on a pile of cash. We're not building in order to spend all on self. And so I'll just ask you, I'll just ask, as God leads, and as you are able, are you leveraging your resources for the kingdom of God? Are you leveraging your time, your money, Your possessions? Are you leveraging it for his mission? Here, Paul in 1 Timothy 6, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's okay to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy the created things that God gives. James isn't condemning here your love of lineage coffee. He's not condemning your plans for dinner after the service. You don't have to go and cancel that vacation that you wanted to go on. But don't set your hope on these things. Hold them loosely and know that they're not your real treasure. Paul continues in verse 18. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So sacrifice. Give to the cause of Christ. Be generous to those in need. Take hold of life as the offer. Number two, and this will be shorter, I promise. Number two, words of comfort. The words of comfort is this. There is one who hears your cry. James's woe to the wealthy wasn't just for their hoarding and self-indulgence. It was for the way that they enriched themselves through injustice, defrauding the poor. James says judgment is coming. He says, and while the cries of the poor may fall on deaf ears in the courts of men, In the marketplace of a hustling and bustling economy, while their voices are drowned out in the revelry and the parties in the halls of high society, their voices reach the ears of God. Behold, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James uses a distinctive title for God here, one that you find throughout the Old Testament. Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. The Old Testament is clearly in his mind when he writes this passage. So in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet links the title Lord of hosts to judgment of those who oppress the poor. He says, who join house to house and field to field. He's saying that through power and influence, they defraud the poorer of the land of their land. Well, this problem was still a problem in the first century. It still existed with increasing concentration of land in the hands of wealthy landowners. So as a result, these farmers, they were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to rich landlords. I think this is the context to Jesus' parable of the the vineyard. I think that's the background for that parable. These workers were paid every day, paid daily for what they did because they lived really meal to meal to withhold wages meant that they wouldn't eat and the wealthy were very creative at finding ways to do that because they knew that the poor wouldn't have any recourse in courts James echoes Deuteronomy 24:15 he says you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin James says that the very wages themselves held back by fraud. that's what cries out against these rich. The image reminds me it reminds me of the, the blood of Abel spilled to the ground, that reaches the ears, that cries out, and that cry reaches the ears of God." In verse six, James says, "You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you." The rich were depriving the poor of justice and practically consigning them to starvation. What the wicked rich think they do without recourse, James says, is not hidden from the Lord of hosts. And while there may be a lot different in, in our world, it's best not to brush this off as relevant to only a different time. How do we view the poor in our society? How do we speak to them? How do we treat them? How do we treat our employees? Whoever has responsibility to set wages, especially for day laborers, those who are near to the poverty line, ought to heed the warning of this passage. Guard your hearts, James is saying, from the love of money that would tend towards exploitation and tend towards stinginess. Generosity and a benevolent spirit ought to shape the way that Christians pay their employees. Kent Hughes says this, all who employ others must ask themselves if there are any voices calling out to God because of them. The passage is a warning to the rich who think they can get away with defrauding the poor. But as I said, it's also written, it's written to the church to provide an encouragement to the the righteous in the church, these poor people. The title, Lord of hosts, must strike fear into the heart of one and be a pillar of comfort to the other. So imagine yourself in the shoes of these first century Christians, many of them living meal to meal, being taken to court by the rich in the world, living through this experience of injustice at the hands of the rich. This is a comforting truth. The same as that passage, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Though the rich don't acknowledge it now, there will be a day at the end of these last days where they will stand before the God of justice. And this is God's reassurance. Your cries reach my ears. The world doesn't hear. The world rolls over you, but I hear you and I care. And your life is in my hands, not theirs. Alec Matias says in his commentary, what can the powerless laborer do against the all-powerful employer? nothing for himself, but he can be sure that his very situation has already registered an appeal in the highest court of all. Here the all-powerful Lord sits as judge of the oppressor and the all-sufficient God attends to the needs of his people. Christian, there is no injustice. There is no injustice in your life that slips the notice of God. Nothing that you could be defrauded of that he doesn't reimburse you a thousand times for with his very presence and his person in this life and in the life to come. And why is that? He's kind and compassionate. He is a God of the lowly. It's not because we are innocent. It's not because we deserve any better, but it's because of his infinite mercy. Through the infinitely costly death of his son, he has purchased your life by the blood of So that you can now say what we sang, right? Christ is mine forevermore. You can sing these words Mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. There my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. That's the message of this text. Set your heart on Christ as treasure for protection from wasting your life in the love of money and set your heart on Christ as treasure for the strength to endure injustice of this world is i've one last word on this passage i'm venturing out here a little bit when i read through the passage verse 6 really struck me it, it it reads a little bit awkwardly it's interesting he says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you from the language of of What James has been speaking about, this is very particular. Scholars say this is so particular, they wonder, is there a particular case James has in mind here? Is there a particular person that was condemned in the courts and was murdered by the rich amongst the the Christians? And that's what James is referencing here. Probably not. I think he's just making a general reference to the suffering of this poor community, what they experienced. But he certainly chose to say it in an interesting way. So listen to what Matthias says. I think he's right in this. He says, It is in fact surely impossible to read the words, Kill the righteous man. He does not resist without the lone and wonderful figure of the Lord Jesus coming before the eyes of the mind. He is preeminently the righteous one. He is the righteous one for you and me. Isaiah 53, 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He is the Lord of hosts that James speaks of in this passage, who willingly yielded up his life. He is the one condemned and murdered for us. He is the one who went to the cross without resistance that we could have true life. And so he is greater treasure than anything else this world could possibly ever offer. Maybe you haven't known that before tonight. Maybe the truth as you analyze your hearts is that your treasure is laid up here on earth. You are pursuing things that are going to fade Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face tonight. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are the righteous one. You are the one who, you've lifted our lives from the pit. You've given us hope through the sacrifice that you made, you've shed your blood that we could be forgiven our sins, and so we have the privilege of standing before you tonight, singing your glorious praise, thankful for what you've done. Jesus, you are the treasure of our hearts, and I know we get confused living in the world. I know there are things, the trinkets of the world, that pull our attention away from you, as astonishing as that is. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you in all your splendor, our King in all your beauty. And we would fix our hearts on you and set our hope upon you. And that we would live in this world in a way that mirrors your generosity and your grace. Help us to love the people we come across in our lives. Help us to love the world. Help us to love our employees. Help us to love the poor. And Christ be glorified through our lives, we pray. Amen.